This is the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, a collection of sermons from Dr. Lewis's time as a teaching pastor at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We hope you grow in your faith and love Jesus more as you learn through these teachings. Here is this week's message. You know, I know this will be hard for some of you to believe, especially after the romantic pictures of chemistry that I shared with you, of Sheridan me, in the last message out of the Song of Solomon, but you know, I once made my wife so mad at me that uh, in the midst of that thunder and lightning, I dropped my keys and went to pick them up, and she walked by and she kicked me. <laughs> yeah, she did that. She kicked me. The same woman that I had in that wonderful beach scene, you know, with the words, I love you, in front of it. She said, she walked by and she kicked me from behind. That's how mad I made that young lady. Now, by the way, on that picture, I'm kind of regretful I even showed that picture because I found that different people saw different things in that picture. The men saw only my wife. They never saw the message. The women saw my wife and the message, and the guys, they saw only the surfboard. That's how you know you're a guy from a real man. Conflict in marriage is inevitable, and so are disappointments. But I want you to listen to this, because it's so important to married life. Conflict is also something else. Conflict is a unique opportunity for every married couple to experience greater intimacy and understanding, if it's rightly handled. I know that's hard to believe because in the passion of the moment, in the heat, in the lightning, and the thunder, we forget that. But I would be even so bold as to say that your marriage and your relationship will never ever have the opportunity to experience authentic intimacy without the hard rub of conflict. It's the front-end pain that every marriage must take advantage of if it is to truly and authentically go deeper. But how, you might ask? Well, that's an important question because in so many marriages, conflict never appears that way. A fight or a conflict often ends not in greater intimacy, but in the dead ends of very hurtful wounds, even further isolation, And if it's not handled rightly, what's worse than all those things is that over time, conflict can dead end at what I call these unholy stalemates where we just don't talk about it anymore. Have you been there? You've got areas that constantly come up, but we never get through them. So eventually, in order to maintain some kind of equilibrium in the relationship, we just simply avoid them But in avoiding them, we also avoid the opportunity for real oneness. Because conflict is the doorway to real intimacy. So how can you fight in a way in which everybody wins? Well, in this final message in the Song of Solomon, I want you to know the three chapters that we're going to look at and skim through is really dedicated not to passion so much as it's dedicated to conflict. So I want you to turn to chapter 5 
And what you're going to find there is not the starry-eyed bliss that falls on a couple before marriage, nor are you going to find there the passion of the honeymoon after marriage, but what you're going to find is the reality of everyday married life. This is where we all live if we're married. And if you have prospects one day of wanting or thinking that you would like to be married, you need to listen very close. Because let me tell you, this week as I was looking at this passage, there, is, there are very few passages that are packed with the wisdom that we're going to find here in this book. Well, how does chapter 5 begin? Well, it begins with a fight. And that's what we want to look at, this fight. Look at verse 2. The, the woman is speaking here, the bride. They've been married for some time. We don't know how long. But she says, I was asleep but my heart was awake. Now that tells us something, that's a clue right at the beginning that something's different here. She says, I was asleep, but my heart was awake. Uh, She is worried. Uh, She's potentially mad, as we'll find out, or both. It's uh, somewhat like uh, those of you who have teenagers feel. You can express that same statement when you say, you know, you need to be by in by 10.30 or 11. And as a parent, you leave the lights on and you go to bed and then you, you wake up and notice it's 11 o'clock, but no one's there. And you're not wanting to be too overly controlling, so you roll back over and you go to sleep again, but your heart is where? It's awake. And that's where she is. She's asleep, but her heart is awake. In this case, Solomon, and we're only supposing here, but for some reason, evidently, he should have been there. But for whatever reason, he's been held up and her heart is whispering these little vignettes as she goes into a fitful sleep. Where is he? Where is he? Why hasn't he sent a messenger to tell me where he is? I mean, isn't he the king? Doesn't he have the power to do that? Why is he so selfishly overlooking me who is the delight of his life? Doesn't he care about me? Well, suddenly he arrives. Notice it goes on to say in verse 2, a voice, my beloved was knocking. And here's what the beloved Solomon says. Open to me, my sister, my darling, my dove, my perfect one. For my head is drenched with dew, my locks with the damp of night. Now, what do you think he's thinking here? You see, old microwave is ready for love. See, in his mind, as he arrives with this manly perspective, he has probably been on kingly duty, got tied up with kingly responsibilities. He is late for sure, but he thinks she'll understand, and so he shows up after working in the work world with all these responsibilities, having gone and driven all night in his chariot just to be with her. And now he's here and he says, open to me, I'm here. Let's enjoy one another. Like any young man from Mars, he doesn't understand that first he has some explaining to do. See, he needs to offer some kind of apology to a woman whose focus is on relationship. She needs to be reassured that she's more important than his work. She needs affirmation. She needs to know what happened that made him so late. She doesn't just turn on like he does. Isn't that right, ladies? 
So there he is. But he's totally unaware as this young husband that he's missed the point. He's there paying her a great compliment. But he's missed the point. On the other hand, like any young woman from Venus, this young lady is misreading the situation too. He is not here, contrary to popular myth, for sex. Quite the contrary. His desire, as any young man's desire is for his wife, is from his perspective the greatest compliment that he could ever pay her. After being pushed and bullied and bruised by a competitive world and workplace, She's the place that he wants to run to. To him, she is the guaranteed place of safety for his masculine ego that's so fragile that he cannot let anyone else see, but he wants her to see it and feel it and be with him. She is his oasis of reassurance and responsiveness, where the armor of life can be traded for intimate acceptance. That's why he's here, and that's what's in his mind, and he's learned to express that by God's creation physically. And so he arrives. But like any young lady, she doesn't have that kind of deep insight so his call for intimacy may be faulted for its bad timing. But I want you to know, ladies, his desire for intimacy itself is not bad. God created men just this way. But this young woman, like so many young wives, doesn't know that. And so rather than confront his bad timing, not his bad attitude, with truth stated in love, she instead stabs his fragile ego, as you'll see in a moment, with vindictive excuses. And he will read that not as bad timing, but he will misread it from her lips as a personal rejection. Look at verse 3. He's pleading with her at the door. And here's what she says to him. I have taken off my dress... How can I put it on again? I have washed my feet. How can I dirty them again? You know what that is? That's Hebrew for I have a headache. <laughs> a real bad one. Here is this young woman who, in the four chapters previously, was swooning over just... This, this handsome king that she wanted to give her life and her body to. But in this moment, rather than speak the truth of his bad timing and love, she speaks in riddles and says to him, you know, it's too hard to get up and put my dress on and walk 15 feet to the door and open it. And I've washed my feet, even though he's gone all night, you know, I just can't dirty my feet again. And his ego is crucified because he hears it clearly as a stab 
in the heart. This is how husband and wives often fight. Don't you fight that way? With coded, listen, with coded, loaded language. Not clear, concise, precise language, but with coded, loaded language. In riddles. You know what the Scripture says? I found this Scripture in Proverbs the other day that I think fits this passage beautifully. It's Proverbs 27.5 and it says this, Better is open rebuke than love that is concealed. Concealed love hurts much more than what I did wrong. Just tell me. This young woman could have said what she really felt. She could have said, I'm hurt and a little mad and I'm not ready for you yet. I need an explanation. But the truth is, there's a deeper, darker issue in her heart that every man and woman must face. You see, at this moment, she wants more than truth. She wants a measure of revenge for what she perceives as a wrong suffered. She wants revenge for what she perceives is a wrong done. While the man is there at the door thinking he's paying her a great compliment. Now if all this sounds maddening, does that not sound maddening, that twist? If all that sounds maddening, it is. But it's how married people often live. And it's so confusing and it's so hurtful. Notice though he persists for a while in appealing to her. Look at verse 4. He says, my beloved extended his hand through the opening. Even though she said what she said, he's still saying, honey, come on. He's reaching through the opening. And notice in verse 4, she's even aroused by those appeals, though she's not responsive to them. She says, and my feelings were aroused. But it didn't cause her to get out of bed, did it? No, she stayed there until she felt like enough punishment had been extracted from the situation. She's the court, she's the judge, and she's the jury. But like what happens in so many marriages when we act that way and take on that kind of authority, we wait too long, don't we? And we inflict too much hurt. And that's exactly what happens. So she finally comes around and she gets up. But look at verse 5. When she arises, she goes to her beloved and her... And she says, my hands drip with myrrh and my fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the boat, meaning, okay, I'm going to open and work this out. So she opens in verse 6 to my beloved, but my beloved had turned away and had gone. What started as a misunderstanding, she expanded into a confusing, riddled, filled fight In the end, she both got what she wanted and got what she didn't want. Because now there's isolation in their relationship. It's like the Proverbs says of a foolish woman. It says a wise woman, Proverbs 14.1, a wise woman builds her house, but the foolish woman tears it down with her very own hands. She destroys it. What follows in the rest of chapter 5 is what I call in your outline. You might look at it because we're not going to go through this in detail. Self-inflicted pain, then she has a new beginning, and then a new perspective. The self-inflicted pain comes when after the fight, she realizes, I've blown it. 
And so she goes looking for her husband in the city. Now, whether this is, and this is where poetry is difficult, whether this actually happened or it's symbolic, I take it to be symbolic of something else, she gets beat up. She ends up inflicting pain in herself by the response that she gave. Notice she goes out and looks in verse 7, the watchman who makes the rounds of the city discovered me and saw me out late by myself and thought of me as maybe a woman of the night and he struck me and wounded me and the guardsmen of the walls took away my shawl from me. I take that as symbolic for meaning that in the end when we act the way she did, we end up hurting ourselves the most. And that's what she did for herself. But somewhere in this chapter, she begins to have a change in attitude and a new beginning begins to arise in her. And let me tell you how it happens because you can kind of see it in the text. Somewhere along the line, she's going through a metamorphosis where the focus of her attention is moving from herself and her anger and her perceived injustices to now her anger's, her focus is beginning to shift in this new beginning back to him and how valuable he really is and how small a thing this really was. So in verse 10, she says something like this, My beloved is dazzling and ruddy and outstanding among 10,000. His head is like gold, pure gold. His locks are like clusters of dates. His eyes black as the raven. He begins to have this, she begins to have this metamorphosis of attitude. She begins to see that he's really more important than the situation. And so a new perspective dawns in this reassessment, this readjustment and focus. And so as you move into chapter 6, she goes and she finds him in his garden working. And she comes to him in humility. Listen, here's what happens. And offers to him a new perspective of what she now understands is her personal... Now listen, because we don't think of this way in marriage. Her personal duty and obligation to the relationship. And by the way, in marriage, that's exactly what you have to your partner. A duty and an obligation before God. So she finds him in the garden, and here's the statement she makes to him, which offers this new perspective. Verse 3, she says, I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. Now you go, well, where is the new perspective? I don't see it. Well, I only think you can see it if you turn back to where she made the same statement, but with a little different twist, because word order in the Hebrew language is real important. First things are first in the Hebrew language. Okay? So I want you to turn back to the other statement she made just like this in chapter 2, verse 17, or verse 16. This is when they were in the engagement stage and love was in full chemistry. And in her ecstasy, she said, My beloved is mine, and I am his. But now, she says, I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. There is an enormous paradigm shift here. What she's saying is this, no longer in our relationship is my first thought going to be, you're mine. And that's how lovers think. You're mine. I'm going to have you for me. She's saying, no, I'm starting to understand it's a whole new 
situation here in married life, in daily life, and that is, my first thought is going to be, I'm yours. And I have an obligation to you. Do you know how many marriages could be saved? How many would flourish beyond just being saved with this simple but profound paradigm shift? From you're here for me to an unbelievable, I'm here for you. You know, when I do wedding ceremonies, I close those ceremonies by giving the bride and groom vows. And the vows are different except the endings. They both say the same thing as they turn and face one another and hold hands and gaze starry-eyed into each other's eyes. And I ask them to repeat these words and they repeat after me. They say to one another, listen, all that I am and all that I ever will be, I now give to you. I pledge to you my life. I give to you my love. Till death us do part. Do they understand what they're saying? Do they really mean those words? Well, certainly only as much as two people can shortly before marriage. But the truth is, no one will ever know if they really mean it or not until the first fights break out. That's the only time you really know it. But if in those tense moments, rather than locking one another out and punishing one another based on my own authority, whether it be for sex or for finances or for job or for priorities, or for time spent with one another, or for how the house looks, or whatever else it is. If instead of locking you out and punishing you, I humble myself and move towards you because I really understand now that I'm here for you, and I move towards you with humility, as this woman, this very wise young woman, by the way, did for Solomon, only then do we really know whom is here for who? Only then. Which leads us to what I call fighting lesson number one. It's this. Humility. The kind that says I'm here for you to meet your needs and to honor your life. Humility is the golden key of a win-win marriage. Humility will always be the golden key of a win-win marriage. And when both husband and wife have that kind of humility, that kind of way of thinking, that first thought, I'm here for you, then you need to look out because what's about to bloom is an authentic marriage. At the end of this moment, this infraction, this fight, in verse 3, the woman found the golden key. And she used it. And what led from that is opening the door to the next section, which is the reconciliation. I want you to look at verse 4. He says, and now the man speaks as she makes this pronouncement to him. He says, you are as beautiful as Terzah, my darling. Terzah was a beach. It says, you're as beautiful as Waikiki. My darling, as lovely as Jerusalem, the most wonderful place I know. 
And he uses a very manly term here, which is meaningful to him. He, you're as awesome as an army marching with banners. You're incredible to me. Now, you know what I like about Solomon's response here? It's a very wise response. As a wounded husband, remember, he was wounded by that encounter. As a wounded husband, he's not vindictive. You see that? He can forgive and forget. He goes on and starts praising her. He is, as one man said, he's not historical. Women get hysterical. Men can get historical. He's not historical. And what do I mean by historical? You know where you go over every detail of the offense when somebody in humility comes to you and says, I'm sorry. And rather than receive their confession, you begin to do something like this. Well, I appreciate this, but did you know how cold it was out there? Did you know I was soaking wet standing at that door knocking? And you had the audacity to say to me that you couldn't get up out of the bed that was only 15 feet away and tiptoe over without getting your feet dirty and open to me? Do you know how that felt as a man when I've been working for you and making a living for you and all the responsibilities of the kingdom I have? If you don't, let me talk about it again. <laughs> Let's go over it in detail again. No, he doesn't do any of that. Now we do that. Because you know what? We become like the woman because there's a darker side of males. And that is they want to get even. And they want to be now court and judge and jury and extract punishment till they feel okay. But not Solomon. His response is not in Garth Brooks' words to bury the hatchet with the handle sticking out. His response is not historical. His response is full of grace and reassurance and honor. And he begins to praise her, especially if you'll notice in verses 8 and 9, he says, there are 60 queens and 80 concubines and maidens without number. In other words, as a king, I have at my disposal a huge harem of women. I can do anything I want. But my dove, verse 9, my perfect one, you're unique. You're the one I want. I only want you. Now listen carefully. This woman, in this moment, something's about to take place. This woman went to apologize to Solomon for sexually rejecting. She went in all humility offering herself to him. But what she discovered in her, her humility, because she had a real man of God here, was not that he said, okay, and now I'm going to use you. No, what she discovered from his lips was how much she was valued. He didn't take her. He praised her. He began to tell her all those things that she really longed to hear in the first place back in verse 2 when the fight occurred. And then she responds, because she had a big surprise in this moment. Look at verses 11 and 12. She says, before I was aware of it, my soul, and a lot of people think that's a re reference to Solomon, my soul, Solomon, set me over the chariots of my noble people. Now, chariots were some of the most valuable commodities in a kingdom. 
And what she's, ba what she's basically saying here is I went down to make up and before I even knew what was happening, my husband was lifting me up and exalting me and telling me that I was his most treasured possession. And that's what I wanted to hear in the first place. How valuable I am. Remember that the fighting started because she thought he was just using her. But in this wonderful reconciliation, she discovers just the opposite, how valuable she is. And that leads us to fighting lesson number two. Abundant grace, not, not justice. See, when we act as judge, we always injure. Abundant grace, not justice, is the right path to a win-win marriage. You don't rub it in. You don't get historical. What you do is when somebody comes and asks for forgiveness, is you receive them, especially when it's your mate. You love them and you praise them because you want them to win too. See, it's a win-win you're after, not just a win. Now before we go on, I want you to know that many marriages stop at this point. They stop here at the end of chapter 6. They have a fight. They then reconcile with forgiveness, but they fail to learn from their mistakes. And so you know what happens in time? Well, if you fail to learn by your mistakes, then you're doomed to repeat them, don't you? And so you repeat them again. There's the same encounter. He comes in a month later, tired at night, approaches her. They have the same, she has the same reaction. And so the same scenario starts again. And he comes and they get together and forgiveness is offered and granted, but they don't learn from their mistake. And so they repeat the mistake again and again, though forgiveness is wonderful, is that the marriage never deepens. Did you hear that? In the area of tension. It never ever goes deeper. It just simply sits on the surface. Forgiveness is achieved, but not oneness. And that's the tragedy. The marriage stagnates at this superficial level and the opportunity that conflict presented to go deeper is never fully realized. But not with this couple. This couple is going to show us their real wisdom. But I want you to know every couple should take seriously the questions I'm going to mention here for just a moment. Let's just stop and pause before we see how they resolved it. And here are the questions that I wish I could get every couple a week away to answer these questions in this progression because it would change their marriage if they had the humility key to use. First of all, it would be this question, do we desire an intimate marriage? Secondly, if so, in what areas of our marriage is our intimacy stuck? And every marriage has a few of those places, a few thorns. Thirdly, what would it take to get us or me unstuck? And then what every couple or every individual wants to know in marriage where there's that tension is this. Is that adjustment reasonable and fair? Next, is that adjustment within my power to do? Then finally, if it is, then why in the world would I not want to make it to be a better lover? Why in the world would I not want to do that? And when we come to that point, 
As we sit in our retreat center overlooking that wonderful overlook, we come face to face with the dark side of us, don't we? Because oftentimes, you know why we find we won't do it? Because we just don't want to do it. For some reason, we just don't want to. That's why David said, search me, O God, and see if there's any hurtful way in me. Try me. Know my thoughts. Because sometimes the hurtful way has been embedded there a long time. And only you and God can get it out. Those are the key questions for a win-win relationship. Now, our young couple here in the Song of Solomon did more than just fight and reconcile. They took a second major step, which is part of the art of intimacy. They set about to correct their mistakes and put into practice the insight that they had gained from this painful conflict. And I want you to know, husbands, you who are husbands and husbands-to-be, put in your notes 1 Peter 3, 7. Because it tells you that you need to live with your wife in an understanding way since she's from Venus. That's what it says there. You cannot live with your wife on instinct or guesswork or just more effort. It's an art, men. It's an art. And it requires precision understanding. And Solomon understands that. And at the end of chapter 6, Though the crowd is saying, look at verse 13, come back, come back, O Shulamite, come back, come back that we may gaze at you. The reason they're shouting, the crowd's there in this poem, this mythical crowd, is because he's saying, honey, let's go away. Spend some time together. Just what you want. He's taking her away. And when you come and see what follows, he begins to then praise her and romance her in words that are only relevant 3,000 years ago, but they are words of affirmation and affection that she understands. He begins to do that in chapter 7, verse 1. How beautiful are your feet and sandals, O princess daughter. The curves of your lips are like jewels. The work of your hands of an artist begins to romance her. Now listen, men. An understanding husband will tell his wife with affirming words of affection what he likes about her on a regular basis. And unless you have lips that are sewn together and you cannot speak, you can do that. You can do that. And according to Scripture, if you have an art in your life, you will do that. Unless you just want to be sinful. You will do that. You'll make that skillful adjustment. The wife, on the other hand, makes some skillful adjustments of her own too. I want you to notice her words in, in uh, verse 10 of chapter 7. She says, again, she reiterates, I am my beloved's, and his desire is for me. There's an interesting insight in that phrase, his desire is for me. In other words, I finally get it. I finally get it. I've got some new understanding. His sexual passion is not inherently selfish. In fact, it really is for me. That's how he expresses his passion. For me. And I should delight in that. Not try to blunt that. I can help shape it for a win-win. But I shouldn't be using riddles and excuses to reject his masculinity. I get it. 
And so in the final three verses, she suggests to him a win-win opportunity that will thrill them both. Look at verse 11. She says, come, my beloved, and let us go into the country. Let us spend the night in the villages. Let us rise up and go early and go to the vineyards. Let us see whether the vine is budded and its blossoms have opened and whether the pomegranates have bloomed. And there, <laughs> there I'll give you my love. Here she's reminding him what he needs to understand about her. She needs to go away with him. She needs a lot of focused time. She needs, she needs focused time with an attentive husband. But listen, in verses 12 and 13, she also lets him know how well she now understands him. Look, there I will give you my love, she says in verse 12 at the end. And then she says, the mandrakes have given forth fragrance and over our doors are all choice fruits, both new and old, which I've saved up for you, my beloved. You know what she's understanding? His needs. What are his needs? His needs are sexual fulfillment with a responsive, creative wife. Now, I know this is intimate, ladies and gentlemen. I know that. But I would rather you get it from a pulpit than a TV screen. Now, listen very closely, because what I'm going to tell you is some intimacy about a man. She is telling him that she is going to be responsive to him. That's why she says, hey, let's go to the country. Spend time with me. But there, I'll give you. You see the responsiveness? It's not him always suggesting. She's suggesting. There, I'll give you my love. And do you see the creativity that's packed into what I think is one of the most powerful verses for a woman, verse 13? She says, I've saved up for you, my beloved, choice fruits, both new and old. Listen, I can tell you what that means in Hebrew. She's saying, by old, she's saying, listen, honey, when we go out in the country, I plan to repeat the best of our lovemaking for you. But I got some surprises for you, too. Not just the old. I have some new things. I'm going to be an even better lover for you, and I have some surprises. Now, let me tell you, there's not a man in this room right now that isn't thinking this. I'd give anything for a woman like that. Because that's a woman who understands a man rather than makes fun of him or avoids him or speaks riddles to him. I want you to contrast that mature response to the following statement that Willard Harley writes about in his book, His Needs, Her Needs. Now listen, ladies, I'm speaking to you now. We speak a lot to the men, but I'm going to speak to you. Listen very closely. After counseling 20,000 couples... He writes, when a man chooses a wife, he promises to remain faithful to her for life. This means that he believes his wife will be his only sexual partner. He makes his commitment because he trusts her to be as sexually interested in him as he is in her, just as she trusts him to meet her special feminine needs. Unfortunately, in many marriages, the man finds that putting his trust in this woman has turned into one of the biggest mistakes of his life. He has agreed to limit his sexual experience to a wife who is now unwilling to meet this vital need that to him is like air or water. Not long ago, I read a book called The Gift of Sex by Clifford and Joyce Penner. 
And I tell you, I would have given a treasure to have this book when I was newly married. It is one of the finest books, both in its art and its practicality that I've ever read. And if you are married, you need to have this book and you need to read it. And if you are a young married, you have an opportunity way above the rest of us. And that is, as a man and a woman, you need to look at the information that's in a book like this. So healthy and it's so wise. It's the art of intimacy. There are two fighting lessons I want to end with this morning that stand out in this final chapter. Fighting lesson number three is this. Personal adjustments are the primary skills for a win-win marriage. It's your personal adjustment. Nobody can make you do it. You do it because you're responsive to God. You do it because the other person is worth it. And then fighting lesson number four is this. It's just simply stated. Pride kills. And by that I mean those who refuse to understand and adjust to their mates, those who refuse to learn from them in order to win at the marriage, inevitably lose. Every time they lose. But those who with godly humility seek to rightly understand and to personally adjust in marriage not only win for themselves, they win for their mate. Listen, this message is the primary message of the whole book of Song of Solomon. It's called The Art of Intimacy. Thank you for listening to this week's message. It really helps us when you rate and review this podcast. If you found today's teaching helpful, take time to do that today. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. Visit soundofarose.com for any of your podcasting needs.